Anthony Mesquita is a world-class expert on copyright, IP, and contract law. He is the general counsel at the Victoria and Albert Museum, and as a consultant solicitor at Keystone Law, he independently represents clients in a range of sectors, including software, media, music, luxury, fashion, and culture. In preparing for this interview, I learned a lot about the intricacies of copyright and what it means to author an original or inspired work of art. There's also such a thing as copyleft as opposed to copyright, which we'll get into later. But first, it's worth noting that copyright is complex and evolves with time and technology. Animals don't have copyright, so that when a monkey takes a selfie, the owner of the camera controls the image. Surprising rights of playwrights include the ability to demand that their plays are only performed by actors of a certain gender, which apparently is legal and part of the artist's moral rights. For example, Samuel Beckett's estate doesn't allow female actors to perform in Waiting for Godot, which is crazy if you ask me. Other interesting trivia include Anne Frank's diary, which serves as an example of using co-authorship to extend copyright. Her father, Otto Frank, repeatedly denied editing co-authoring Anne's diary during his lifetime. But after he passed away, the nonprofit that manages the estate asserted that he did heavily edit the diaries and was therefore a co-author. That gave them the right to significantly extend the copyright duration to 70 years after Otto's death, thereby leaving the diary still within copyright protection at the moment. Anyway, this is a fascinating field, and I think you're going to love this conversation. So join Anthony and me as we discuss the nature and nuance of copyright and how it applies to art, culture, and innovation. So, hey, Anthony, it's, it's a pleasure to have you here today. How, how are you doing? Yeah, I'm doing all right. Cool. So you're currently uh, the legal counsel for the V&A at the Victoria and Albert Museum, and you've, you've been in that position for how long now? Approaching six years now. Wow, crazy. What are some of the uh, most, I don't know, crazy copyright incidents you guys have had? Oh, crikey. Well, I've got to be careful. I don't breach my confidentiality issues. But there's been some fantastic copyright issues that I've had to address. Some of the most interesting ones arise in sort of an exhibition context. And particularly, we had the we had an exhibition on video games, which I think you saw, didn't you? The, I the, loved um, it. Great the, exhibition. Video games exhibition, where the idea... So the Victoria and Albert Museum is National Museum of Art and Design. So we were focusing on the design aspects of video games. But it wasn't just a sort of a celebration of how lovely video games are. We asked some challenging questions about video game, games, such as why are they so white? What's the problem with this misogyny you've got going on in video games and the violence in video games? So we asked some challenging questions, but we also celebrated some of the, you know, the amazing achievements that video games have given us. But in that context, in order to have the games in the exhibition, we needed to have mods. We need to have modified versions running on our systems, which meant engaging with the manufacturers. And in the main, most of them were fine. Most of them said, yes, we'd love to have our game in your exhibition. And occasionally they would say, but what are you going to say about us? And our stock answer was, we're not going to tell you. And most of the time they said, oh, that's fine. That's fine. Here's a modified version, you know, go and use it. But on one or two occasions, you had, we had a video games manufacturer saying, well, we require approval. We, we will only let you use our game if we get to pre-approve exactly what you're going to say about us. And that was a problem for us because we needed to have our sort of artistic curatorial integrity kept intact. So we couldn't allow that. So then we had to find ways around the problem. 
and that's where I came in. And using various different copyright defenses under English law, we were actually, even where we didn't have the permission of the video games manufacturers, we were able to run either through YouTube clips or through some sort of media. We were able to have the games featured in the exhibition and rely on some of the more subtle copyright defenses in order to justify that. Even though we'd been prohibited from the video games manufacturers from doing it, we still found a way around it. And so that was fun. As a lawyer, that was fun to navigate my way around the copyright legislation. So first of all, that's really cool. And, and like I said, the exhibit was amazing. And it's great that you're able to maintain the integrity of the exhibition and not have to kind of you know, give in to corporate pressure. So, so that's really cool. And that brings us actually to some of the issues about copyright. So we should talk about that. Obviously, we have the right to quote sometimes without permission, as long as it's done in a particular context, right? Uh, yeah. Uh, so we should probably go over, because copyright is such a fascinating minefield, and I'd love to kind of go in and out with you through a lot of those things. So actually, let, let's take it from the top for a second. So copyright is about having the right to copy, right? And, uh, and I understand that there's also such a thing as copy left <laughs> these <laughs> days, right? Where some people try and basically give away the right to copy, to encourage. So there's copyright, there's copy left. We'll get into that. But from what I understand, there's a lot of like weird anomalies out there. So for example, copyright usually lasts for seven years after the death of the author. But apparently there's one country where it's 100 years. Did you know that? Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised. In Europe, in the good old days when we were in the EU, it was harmonized across the EU. So it was 70 years post-mortem. That was only, I can't remember when that changed. I think it was the 90s that changed because prior to that, even in Europe, there were various different copyright terms, but we harmonized up. So we still have 70 years, which is the same as Europe, same as America. Although in, in America, they had the concept of works for hire. I don't know if you've heard of this, but if you create a work in the course of your employment or you're commissioned by a, a corporate entity to create a work, copyright lasts, I think it's 100 years from the date of creation rather mm -hmm. than 70 years from the date of the death of the author. So the rule about 70 years from the death of the author is a general rule. But as with all things in copyright, it's subject to a multitude of exceptions. Sure. 100 years for works for hire. And yeah, you're right. There are some countries which yeah. are still got a slightly different term. To Mexico. Other. Mexico is the is it Mexico? It's still 100 years. But yeah, that's really interesting. And actually, I also I learned recently that um, if uh, something is published anonymously, then... It has copyright for seven years from publication. Yes. So there's a whole load of issues around publication right and anonymous works and works which are unpublished at the death of the author. So again, those are all exceptions to the 70-year rule. There's a whole raft of funny little rules that apply, particularly around unpublished works which remain unpublished at the death of the author. Off the top of my head, I can't remember what they are, but they're one of those things. Whenever it comes up, I have to go back to the books, hit the books, have another look at the, at the, <laughs> at the legislation and remind myself about those infinitely complicated rules. That's cool. And, and also, I learned something that I, I didn't really know in prepping for this interview. I didn't know much about moral rights, which are additional rights to copyright. Because you know, often when you look at the, the copyright page of a book, it often says that the author asserts his or her moral rights. You know, I wasn't sure what the hell do moral rights mean? Do you want maybe just explain that for a bit? Yeah. So we've had moral rights in the UK now since the 80s. But they, we, we again, these are, these are a European import. And there's effectively, there's a bunch of them. I'll, let's, I'll talk about three of them. So the most important right, and the right that you're referring to there, 
that you see on the flyleaf of books is the right to paternity. So that's the right to be acknowledged as the author. Yeah. So even if you sold away, like, you know, licensed away, you know, every any revenue, people still have to credit and attribute, you know, that's uh, right. you as the author, as that's long as it's still in copyright. As long as you've asserted your right to be yeah. the author. So, for example, if you're a ghostwriter, and if, let's say you're a publisher, mm. and you've got two contracts, you've got one with the celebrity who's selling yeah. you their memoir, and the other one with the ghostwriter who's writing the memoir. Yeah. Now, you may end up requiring the ghostwriter to waive their moral right because you don't want them to be acknowledged as the author. Yeah. So you can waive your moral right to... Well, well I actually heard this is a bit of technicality, not to, to argue with, with, with a lawyer, but I heard that you can't waive your moral rights, but you can create a contract where you promise not to exercise them. But I don't know if that's true. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, I, there. perhaps a technicality. I mean, I, I, you often hear about what moral rights being waived, and I think the legislation okay. does talk about paternity. I think paternity can. I mean, in fact, the other important moral right is the right to object to derogatory treatment. Yes, now, you this and I, is interesting. You and I talked before, didn't we? About you had an interesting story. Perhaps you can tell us about uh, about Sam Beckett, one of his. Yeah, Samuel his, Beckett. So, I understand that for whatever reason. He decided that uh, his play Waiting for Godot should only have male actors perform those roles. And, and apparently there have been instances where different productions have tried to have female actors even play male roles. And Beckett's estate has objected and, and been able to block those productions in France and Germany. But apparently in Italy, the Court of Appeal did allow women to perform the roles of, of these two male actors. But that's a little bit crazy. And... Uh, you know, and then I also heard similarly that, uh, who was it? I think it was, yes, it was Edward Albee's estate blocked a show of Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf that cast a, a black actor as the male lead because apparently Edward Albee didn't want a black actor to play the, the lead, which to me just sounds crazy discriminatory. I don't really understand how, how that's no. legal. Yeah, that's a startling story there, that one. And these are applications of the moral right to object to derogatory treatment. So this, again, is a right. So even if I give away my copyright, as an artist, as an author, unless I've waived it, I retain the right to object to derogatory treatment. And sometimes that's a really powerful right. So I'm guessing in the Beckett, Wake for Godot story there, what the estate is doing is saying that Beckett wrote those parts for men to play. And if you put a, women in those positions, you're messing with my art. Yeah. And that is a derogatory treatment. Now, in this day and age, that's a difficult proposition to maintain, which is probably why the Italian courts, you'd be surprised, actually, the Italian courts taking this position. But perhaps that's the reason why. But it's a powerful right. Here's another example that I'm aware of in Spain, which was you had a, there was an artist who created a piece of public art. So a big piece of public art in a pedestrianized part of a major city. I can't remember which, which city it was now. And I can't remember the name of the artist either. But a big piece of public art in a pedestrianized city so that the public can walk around it. It was a very popular piece of art. But the town planner said, what we're going to do now is we're going to re-engineer this part of town. So whereas this art was once in a pedestrianized mm. part of town, it's now going to be on a roundabout. Yeah. And the artist said, no. The artist said, I designed this piece of work to be an interactive piece of public art for people to walk around and engage with. By turning it, by putting it on a concrete island in a roundabout, that's a derogatory treatment of my art. 
and I'm objecting that you can't do that without paying me damages. And the artist succeeded in that claim that's to, what, to block I think that's it. kind of cool to some extent. I mean, this is obviously a complicated issue, right? Uh, I like the idea that the artist can have control over what they create. Obviously, it doesn't sound fair when they discriminate against, you know, I don't know, race or gender. But certainly the idea that they can decide that, you know, they want it to be in a specific environment or context, there, there's something to be said for that, that, well, I guess, I don't know, there's something kind of interesting about that. Similar to some extent, uh, but a little bit different, like I heard that uh, Netflix was toying with the idea of allowing people to watch films and TV shows with accelerated speed, because on YouTube, you can change the speed, you can watch it in an accelerated manner. And I heard that, like, you know, directors were going basically crazy. They're saying, you know, this is awful. You're changing our art. I don't know what the legalities were of it, but maybe, maybe that would be der- I, a derogatory. Like I, th- uh, I think, to, to I think they would have say you're violating how they wanted to show their their work. Yeah, I think the to the rights of the film would normally belong to the producer and the director, and I think that they would have good grounds to say, look, if you're going to speed it up, if you could, any editing of my movie without my say so is potentially a derogatory treatment. And they could object to that. There's an interesting, if I can just sort of take you on a little sideways alleyway here, but there's a tension between the law of derogatory treatment and the law of parody. So we've we introduced into the UK a new concept of parody in 2014, where we said that artists are allowed to, so the general public are allowed to, a defense to a copyright claim can arise in the context of a parody. And this hit the papers very recently with, with, did you see the Tintin Edward Hopper parody story? I know that somebody used uh, Tintin and, and tried to do a parody, but lost or something, but I don't know. I don't know if that's no, the case there. No. It's so, different. so this is an interesting, it was quite recent. It was the last couple of months ago. Months okay, ago. No, I'm not, not up to that. That's, it's interesting. Yeah. So you had an artist who did these Tintin Edward Hopper mashups. So what he did was he put Tintin into Edward Hopper paintings, but also kind of subverted them in the sense that one of the things that's quite interesting about Tintin is that he's completely asexual. Mm -hmm. But in these paintings, he sexualizes Tintin. And the estate of Hergé was very upset with that. So they brought a claim. But the courts decided, no, this is a parody. This is European law now permits a parody. There has to be a balance struck between the rights of the author and the rights of the person undertaking the parody. But in this context, the balance fell in favor of the person making the parody. So they were allowed to make the parody. Now, this is in contrast. So interesting, as far as I'm aware, the two biggest cases involving parody both involve Belgian cartoons. Hmm. The other case was from, I think, about 2016, and it involved a another Belgian, very, very well-known Belgian cartoon that was appropriated by a right-wing political party in Belgium and turned into an anti-immigration meme. And there, again, there was a claim brought, and again, the defense of parody was raised by the, it was actually a political party, who, a right-wing party who, who, who had undertaken this leafleting campaign. But they ultimately, the courts decided that they actually never firmly decided they pushed it back down to the local belgian court to make a decision but what they said was the rights of the person making the parody have to be balanced against the rights of the the rights owner and when considering whether how that balance should be taken into account you can take into account the fact that in this context the message being 
displayed through the parody was fundamentally against European principles. And effectively, what the European courts were saying was, it's not our job to tell you how to rule on this one, Belgian courts, but we think that this is not a valid parody. So the general view there is that that was not a valid parody because the person making the parody went too far and caused a great deal of upset. Whereas, you know, you could say that similar cases in Tintin, but it, it went the other way in Tintin. Yeah. So some of these things are really, you know, it, it can be a fine line in terms of how, how really interpreted. Fine. Yeah. What you got to remember is interesting. With all litigation, everybody goes into litigation thinking they're going to win. So you know, you never. <laughs> so you take the, the big cases tend to be very fine distinctions. Wow. Very interesting. By the way, just going back to the basics for a sec. From what I understand, copyright's an interesting thing because you can't copyright an idea. Like for example, you can't copyright a recipe. Like you can only copyright how it's described. So if I were to take a recipe book and you know rewrite, describe how to make the recipe, that's fine, basically, right? Yeah, yeah. And I'm perfectly entitled to write a story about a super suave British spy who carries around a small gun in his pocket, is very successful with ladies and drinks martini cocktails. I'm allowed to do that. What I'm not allowed to do is to appropriate large chunks of the script and the names are all protected by trademarks. But yeah, ideas are not protected. There's some, been some fantastic cases. I, mean, I could talk at length. There's a lovely case involving the Da Vinci Code. Oh, and, yeah, I heard about this because there's a book that had the original kind of like theory behind it that was uh, like, an, uh, you know, published as some sort of nonfiction. And uh, I think that a lot of the theories were used in Dan Brown's book, but they sued and lost from what I understood. Yeah, please, yeah. Please do share. It was a fantastic case. It's called, um, it was Random House. It's actually Random House versus Random House. That's what, what it came down <laughs> to. So you had a book called, the Holy Blood, the Holy Grail, I think it was called, written by two authors, Bajent and Lee. They came up with the idea that, well, maybe they didn't come up with the idea, but they, but the book, their book expanded on this idea that the Holy Grail is a metaphor for the bloodline of Christ. So their view is that Christ, before he died, had a child with Mary Magdalene. And when we talk about the Holy Grail, the blood of Christ, what we're actually talking about is that bloodline that survives through to today. And the book was on the face of it as sort of a a nonfiction piece exploring that idea. And when Dan Brown wrote Da Vinci Code, I mean, I hate hate to be a sort of give away the plot, but I think that most people on the planet have probably know know a little bit about the Da Vinci Code. That's one of the main stories in that novel. And interestingly, in a nod to Bajent and Lee, one of the characters in the book, in fact, if you ever watched the movie, the character played by Sir Ian McKellen is called Lee Bajant. Mm-hmm. So that was a nod. An homage. An homage to the originator of the idea. But it was it was a phenomenally successful book, phenomenally successful film. So no surprises that Bajant and Lee sued for copyright infringement. Um, but it went to the courts and the courts, you know, they, the, what the courts said the British courts, they looked at the two stories. And yes, of course, there was undoubtedly the idea was taken from Bajent and Lee's book. But what the court said was, show me the lines in the Bajent and Lee book, which have been copied in the novel. And the claimants weren't allowed, weren't able to prove that. They weren't able to show that the the artistry in the, in the sense of the, the, the literary skill of the claimants, that wasn't appropriated by Dan Brown only the idea and ideas aren't protected by copyright. Cool. That's very cool. By the way, it just brings me 
to something that, again, I, in prepping for this interview, I read that uh, in terms of like old copyright technology, in order to prove that someone had copied, there were lots of traps that uh, publishers would use. And for example, apparently like uh, dictionary publishers would sometimes have fictitious entries just so that if someone did copy, they could go and show, hey, look, you use my fictitious entry with this like, you know, nonsensical definition. Clearly you violate my copyright. Yeah, they're called seeds. We call those seeds when you plant seeds in your work. And you get them a lot in databases. So let's imagine you're you, something like the, the in the good old days of printed databases, the yellow pages. I suspect nobody under the age of 25 knows what the yellow pages are. But if you've got a, a, a database of names and addresses, what used to happen was you'd put a fake name in there. You, so you'd put, you know, Frederick Montague, <laughs> and you put Frederick Montague, and you'd put Frederick Montague's address would be your ATAN's address. And that Frederick Montague at your home address only exists in your database that you've created, which means that if you ever get a letter posted through your letterbox addressed to Frederick Montague, you know that somebody has used your database. And that is often the sort of the smoking gun evidence that is produced when you're arguing somebody has copied my database. You, you produce that evidence and say, it's impossible for this letter to have received, to have been sent to me unless you had access to my database. That's really cool. Yeah, I also heard that old map makers would often put like uh, fake streets in as well. Uh, yeah. So these these yeah. seeds, that's, so there's a lot, of, a lot of cool technology. But, uh, but going back to like, you know, what is copyrightable, what isn't, um, so conceptual art, from what I understand, isn't copyrightable. You know, the documentation of it is. I read about this artist, Piero Manzoni, who, uh, who made a, an upside down plinth and put it on the ground as a pedestal for the world. But the point is, anybody else can go and do that as long as they create their own plinth, basically, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, this is a perennial problem for conceptual art. You look at something like Carl Andre, equivalent four, you know, the pile of bricks. Mm-hmm. Yes, that's a, actually a very important piece of contemporary art. But as a copyright work, is it a copyright work? Can a pile of bricks be a copyright work? And if it is a copyright work, what does that mean? What does it mean to anybody that's doing a bit of building work in my garden <laughs> and arranges the bricks in that formation? Are they, do they have to pay Carl Andre's estate yeah. infringement? And, and, and the other example that I love is Duchamp, you know, Fountain. Yeah. The urinal. The urinal turned on its side with R. Mutt, 1917, yeah. I think, written on the side. Again, a fundamentally important piece of art. But if we say that it's a copyright work, what does that mean? Does that mean that Armitage Shanks have to pay Duchamp and his estate royalties each time they sell a urinal? Does that mean that if I accidentally put my urinal the wrong way around on the wall, that I'm infringing copyright? So conceptual art creates all sorts of very, very difficult copyright problems. That is an unclear one to some extent, because obviously, I, you know, it's, it's a bit ridiculous. And if I understand ready-mades like that Duchamp created, it's not clear if you can claim copyright, but you often do see Duchamp's urinal as a replica in a museum. And you wonder, can't anybody else do that? Maybe they can, but as long as they don't say, it doesn't say our mutt, maybe you just have to find like the, you know, the, the fine way to do it, just say, this is what they made and put in the right context, I guess. I don't know. Maybe. I mean, you're the man on Duchamp. When did he die? Ooh, he might be in the in the public. Uh... I, I think 
Yeah. I'm not sure. Hold on. No, he died quite late. He died in the 60s. So he's he's still in copyright. He's still in copyright. So, yeah, yeah, I mean, tricky question. And if anybody's out there wants to pay me good money to (laughs) advise on that point, I would would gladly do so because it's a very interesting legal Mm. conundrum, that one. But some things that are clear, for example, uh, I understand that animals can't have copyright. This was was a question. I think there was a a monkey, a macaque that uh, took a selfie with uh, a photographer's camera. And there was a question, what is the state of play there? Who's who has the copyright? Is it I think there was some animal rights organization that sued on behalf of the uh, of the monkey to claim the photographer couldn't make money off of it. Do you remember what happened with that in the end? Yeah, yeah. So, so that was, I mean, you've summarized it very well there. So it was an animal rights group who brought the claim on behalf of the macaque. If you look up monkey selfie, you'll see the pictures. They're wonderful pictures of this macaque grinning, gurning into a, in, into a camera. <laughs> the answer from the court was, no, the macaque doesn't own the copyright. You have to be a human being to own the copyright or a legal entity like a company or something. But does um, the photographer but- own the copyright? Yeah, so the answer heavily hinted at, I'm not sure they actually came to a firm conclusion on it, but the answer heavily hinted at was that the artist in making all the proprietary, the photographer who took all the proprietary steps did enough to claim own authorship of the work, even though it was the macaque that pressed the button. He came there, he brought the camera, set up the camera. Set up, got the lighting right, you know, know, um, so (laughs) he'd done enough. That's cool. And, that, and that's actually an interesting question, because from what I understand, when it comes to photography, sim- simple reproductions don't necessarily create copyright. You have to have, there has to be some sort of creativity. Usually it depends, like that's a complicated issue, right? Because if you just make a, a basic reproduction, that doesn't necessarily create a layer. But if you decide on the lighting and I guess, I don't know, the framing and all that, then then there is copyright. How does that work? It's a controversial issue, that one, and one where depending where you ask the question, you'll get a different answer because the Americans take a different view to the Europeans. But here's a question, hypothetical question. Should we treat photography any different from music or any other art form or literature? So if I come up with a a tune, it might be the stupidest tune in the world. It might be, according to every music critic, a terrible tune. But does that mean that it doesn't qualify for copyright? So everybody's allowed to rip off my tune? No, of course not. It, It shouldn't, should it? So with photography, should there be a rule that says only good photographs, only photographs which are regarded as being of having some artistic merit should have copyright? And, you know, as a diff- and the answer to that question was no. If I take a holiday snap using my iPhone, using my non-existent photography skills, I should be entitled to the copyright and I should certainly be entitled to enforce that against anybody who wants to monetize my holiday sure. snaps. At the same time, the issue comes into focus with photographs of out of copyright works. So let's say I take a, I've got a picture mm. uh, hanging on a gallery wall of a, of a Van Dyke, and the Van Dyke is out of copyright. If I take a photograph of that Van Dyke, am I creating a fresh copyright in the photograph, which I'm then able to exploit? And this is important because most gallery, a lot of galleries prohibit photography. So if you want to have access to a decent picture of Van Dyke, you end up having to use the official portraiture, the official photography, where somebody is claiming copyright and you end up having to pay a fee for it. And the question is, is that appropriate? And the American courts have said, no, you can't have copyright in, you can't create a fresh copyright. 
But the European courts, courts are a little bit more vague and ambivalent. And they say, well, yes, you can. And the question comes down to this, which is, has the photographer shown individual skill and effort? And is this work an expression of their own artistic ideas? And if the answer to those questions is yes, then they will enjoy the copyright. And you can see in the context of a photograph of an oil painting that you that it's not just a question of plonking it down in front of the camera and pressing a button. There's all sorts of technical decisions that have to be made by the photographer before he or she is in the position to press that button. And for that reason, I fall on the side of arguing that those high-spec photographs of out of copyright works should be protected by copyright. But it's an open question. It's one of your one of your fine lines yeah. that will end up in court at some point. And as you say, in general, for copyright and also in these instances, America is not as strict as Europe. Europe has a stricter definition for copyright uh, in general. Yes, to some extent. In in America, in that case, America, the American courts took the view there's just no copyright in it at all. But in other cases, the American courts, the American legal system has got this concept of fair dealing, which is really broad and which allows somebody to use another person's copyright to create, for example, a transformative work. So yes. if you've got an artist who, who appropriates another piece of another piece of art, but can successfully argue that they have created a new piece of art then they will be able, they, that will fall under fair dealing and they'll get away with it. So people like Richard, um, Prince. Richard Prince, he's classic. He's, he, he, he does it all the time. Jeff Koons, um, there's a whole load of sort of appropriation artists out there who are, who, who are doing this. They often end up in court, but Richard Prince in particular has been quite successful. Yeah, he's lost some and won some. Yeah. Is my understanding. Um, but, uh, but back to museums, I mean... Um, so yes, they have access to these amazing artifacts that are in the public domain, but they want to somehow create copyrights where they can sell, you know, postcards in their gift shop, and uh, and they can control access. So they can say, hey, anyone can, you know, take pictures on their phones, but we're not going to allow people to set up tripods and have professional cameras because we want to control that basically. And they, and that's legal, but it is one does wonder to some extent. It does seem to slightly go against the spirit of the public domain and. And I've even heard that some museums even sometimes make fake copyright claims. Well, they'll have like some sort of, I don't know, some fake copyright at museum or something in there to obscure the fact that the, an image is out of copyright. I don't know about that. I do know that it's, it's a controversial issue and different museums take a different approach. So most British museums now um, allow photography in galleries Perhaps not in exhibitions. In an exhibition, which is you know the sort of the paid for, where where you have where, where it's a a curated exhibition built built around a, a theme. Normally, often you're borrowing works in which are in copyright, and the lenders will not will prohibit photography. But generally, for galleries, the museums allow personal photography. But as you say, they draw the line with tripods and professional photography. Although having said that, the quality that you can get just from a, like an iPhone 10 or something is so great now that that you don't need a tripod and certainly you know you, you get a very high quality digital camera can create fantastic images so so it's becoming more and more difficult to police those rules and you know some museums take a different view so what you have to remember is that in the UK by and large museums are, are free 
So we, I say this with my V&A hat on here, we have to make our money. One of the ways we make our money is by having a picture library business. Other museums, particularly in Europe and the States, they charge at the door. So image use is very different for them. Images, image use for them is not about generating an income. It's about generating marketing. So the Rijksmuseum in Holland, all of their imagery is up online under a Creative Commons license, so freely available for use. And they'll tell you that that's the way forward and that they haven't looked back and this is the way all museums should go. But every person that walks into the museum in the Rijksmuseum has to pay to get in. So Mm -hmm. that's fine for them. They can put those, they can treat those images as marketing collateral Mm -hmm. and generate their income through driving people to the front door. We can't do that at the V&A, at the Tate, at the National Gallery, at the British Museum. We have a different business model. So, Mm -hmm. So it's difficult to impose a sort of a global rule on museums in that context because we all have a different business model. Right. And, that, and that's a very interesting point, actually. This whole idea of Creative Commons, we started talking briefly about copyleft, but we, we can go into that a bit more. But you know, there's this argument that for, for some artists, it's actually, or you know, institutions, institutions it can be in their benefit to, to kind of waive a lot of these copyright restrictions because then you make the art more prominent. You, by, by releasing restrictions, people use it, it becomes more popular, and therefore the art, if you control it, the actual artifact, all of a sudden it gains value if everybody sees it and knows what it is. So it's a weird kind of dichotomy in a sense. Uh, it's not always clear what's the best path forward. And a lot of artists these days do use these creative common licenses that say anybody can you know, can copy my work and do whatever they want as long as they, let's say, I, they can put restrictions. They can say, do whatever you want, no restriction. Or they could say, you know, as long as you use it non-commercially, they could, you know, there's all these different creative commons licenses. But that's very interesting, actually, to see these different approaches, as you say, and it often depends on, on the business model and what yes. control you have, who in the end of the day also owns the object. And yeah. yeah. You know, what you just said is persuasive about, you know, about, I mean, you've got to remember all museums exist. We're taxpayer funded. So there's a strong argument that we should be making this stuff available for wider use. And generally we do. So generally you can go online to any of the museums and you can download high res images for your personal non-commercial use. Where we draw the line is with commercial use. So with a business accessing our images and then and then monetizing them. That's where we tend to draw the line. And that would also apply to people sort of monetize, um, using our images. One of the interesting, one of the, all of the museums make money from licensing images to companies to put them, to put images into annual reports. So, you know, you've got a big PLC who wants to pepper its annual report with beautiful pictures. So it asks the, the museums for a license to do that. And we say, fine, yes, and here's the fee. The moral argument there that that multinational PLCs who perhaps don't pay as much tax as they should do should be entitled to appropriate images that taxpayer-funded museums have created is less persuasive, I would say as an argument for for creative commons so you've got you know you've got to all of these issues are quite nuanced and you've got to look at it it's always the case that a one size fits approach doesn't work you've got to look at it on a case by case basis sure i mean it's interesting that in the us for example there there's a law that uh, any work produced by uh, by government employees is in the public domain so like uh, dorothy lang she's got some amazing photographs uh, of the 30s and you know, artists can just go ahead and use that because uh, it's in the public domain. So that's, yeah. that's quite interesting. So here's another interesting fact about America, which is that 
I think I'm right in saying this, that radio stations don't have to pay to play music. In UK and Europe, every radio station has to take account of what music they're playing, and then they have to pay a royalty to the owner of the rights. In America, they don't, because in America, the view is that each time a piece of music is played on over the radio, it's a free advertisement for That's that cool. song. So don't complain artists <laughs> that your music's being played on the radio. Don't demand that you have a royalty because you'll get your money at the other end when people buy the record or make the download. But again, that, that's the that, logic to that. I, I didn't know that, but yeah, it makes, that makes some sense. But that's another example, I think, of... See, copyright is fascinating because copyright goes to the very heart of culture. And the way that different countries approach copyright tells you a lot about the culture of those countries. So America's got a very, very different copyright culture from Europe. America has, unsurprisingly, you know, its individual rights are important. Freedom of expression is important. There's a, a First Amendment and uh, and also, you know, there's this idea that, you know, there's positive rights versus negative rights. Like Europe doesn't have anything that necessarily saying that you have the right to express yourself freely, right? Yeah. Does, that doesn't yeah. exist. Yeah. And, and even in Europe, there's interesting fault lines between how sort of a Northern European, let's, let's say the Germanic countries of which the UK is probably one culturally, and the Southern, so the Latin countries. Now, in those countries, let's say Italy, for example, the rights of the artist are given much greater prominence. Whereas in Germany, the rights of the public to access works is given greater prominence. When you sort of dig down into that, you end up coming across sort of important cultural issues because the Italians will say, well, our, our way's right. I mean, look at the Renaissance. That was us. <laughs> Don't tell us about what the right way to, um, about culture. Don't tell us about how best to encourage artistry. But the Northern Europeans will say, the, the British will say, yeah, but we've got Shakespeare. And the and the and the Germans will say, yeah, but look at the look at our philosophers. So in each case, you have these interesting sort of cultural issues which underpin the law, which is quite a fascinating study to do for anybody who's interested. That's really cool, and it's true. You have there's the each culture has certain like uh, I guess uh, dominance in different sectors. So that that, that is really interesting. Uh, but from what I understand, all of them. In all of them, you can't uh, copyright fonts, I believe. Fonts are utilitarian objects. But if the code for a font can be copyrighted, but if I were to go and look at someone's font and draw it again in myself, at least that's, a, that's, what, I, that's what I heard. No, you know, no, no. For, that, for... There's no copyright there as long because my drawing would be a slight variation on someone else's font. No, fonts, fonts are copyright works. Okay, well, that's interesting. So, okay, they, obviously, you know more than my, than me. Yeah, but, so, so, but, but, I, but I was told that it was more the actual the code specifying it is copyrightable. But if you create your own code and it's and it creates a slightly different font that's similar, then you're you know you're scot free. I don't know about that. That's right. I think I think that there are certain. I think that fonts do carry copyright. They're artistic works. Okay. Uh, and I think if you're let's say you're Microsoft and you're putting out a new version of Word, I think you you will have to take. You will have to pay a royalty to the owners of the font copyright to the extent that they are some. And I think a lot of those fonts are a 20th century creation, so there will be copyright in them. Okay. Well, I guess interesting. You might know more, but like, like I said, I was just just reading up uh, for today. I heard that uh, a lot of fonts have been 
variations have been created just to avoid paying them, as you say. Yeah, do just yeah, that. And there, there are variations on Helvetica and all these other fonts. And so Word can just use those and avoid, from what I understood, <laughs> the, the original, I guess, inspiration. Potentially, yeah. Yeah, if you make substantial changes, then you won't infringe the copyright. Yeah. But that's also a weird thing that I guess to some extent is on the boundary of, again, of you know what is what is creative, what isn't. Uh, of course, fonts are creative to some extent, but I think the idea was that they're objects that we need, kind of like these building blocks you 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 said, like you know talk, you talked about. You know, but that's interesting. I also read that uh, social media platforms often when when we sign these user agreements just to use them, we're actually giving them uh, a copyright license to. Uh, yeah. To control, I guess, kind of to reproduce our images, and and there was a little bit of um, controversy over whether or not it's legal for them, at least in Europe, to modify those images because often they'll change the compression and, and they might even wipe some of the metadata that even like has like attribution. And it's not clear if that's even legal when they do that. Yeah, I don't know. yeah. The, the social media companies have to have to they walk a tightrope because they all include in their terms and conditions a license terms that say that once you post it, you give facebook instagram quite wide rights over the subsequent use of those images and each time there's a change to the terms and conditions you get special interest groups who trawl through that and then mount campaigns saying everyone should boycott facebook because they've changed their terms mm -hmm. and, conditions. and normally that gets that, that they, you know they, they get a bit of leverage for a couple of weeks and everybody just and everybody is a bit nervous and then they come back to facebook and they forget about it whether well i mean i don't know to extent to what extent facebook do or sort of take those images and make uh, and make wider uses of them i think if they ever did try and monetize those images there would be a loud outcry from the public right. there's also the court of public opinion as well exactly exactly they have to take that into account well that's cool um by the way going back to moral rights for a second i understand there's also the right of do you pronounce it divulgation is that the, the right pronunciation which is basically to decide when something is released to the public and so the author should have control of that. And if, if that is leaked in some way, then the, the artist's uh, not just copyright, but also moral right has been violated. I don't, I've not heard that as a moral right. The moral rights under the UK legislation are the right to paternity, the right to object to derogatory treatment, the right to object to false attribution. Mm -hmm. So, Eitan, if you are, if somebody suggests that you are the author of, you know, the next 50 shades of gray, you have a moral right to object to that on the basis that that's a false attribution of your name to that work. Yeah. And then there's another moral right, which applies to privacy in photographs taken for domestic purposes. So if, if you commission somebody to, to take a photograph of your, of you know, a wedding, a christening, a bar mitzvah, and irrespective of what the contract says, you as the commissioning party have the right to object to the commercialization of those images if they've been created for a domestic purpose. So that right that you've just mentioned is not on the statute book. It may well be a sort of a shorthand for another form of copyright or contractual protection, but it's not a recognized moral right. Okay, fair enough, fair enough. Let's talk for a sec about um, piracy. Because that's an interesting issue, right? Uh, you know, sometimes it's, you know, it sounds glamorous, right? Just the term <laughs> itself. What do you make of piracy? You know, when, you know, yeah. Well, what is the state of play? 
Well, let's be clear what we we mean by piracy, because what we normally mean by piracy is a criminal endeavor to infringe copyright. So what we're what we're normally talking about here is the large scale ripping. It used to happen a lot with DVDs and CDs. In this day and age, it doesn't happen so much. What what what, what piracy more often happens, I suppose, is people ripping films and music and then distributing them for free through various channels and monetizing it. The important thing is there; it's often, it's monetized. And there, well, although are, some some piracy isn't monetized, right? Like. Uh, and that's a, you know, that's also where it gets complicated because uh... yeah yeah I mean and and then you have to ask well is that piracy or is that something else because piracy isn't a legal term it's yeah. a sort of a general cultural term okay. certainly used to be the case that piracy traditional piracy you know those DVDs that people used to sell out of bags in shopping centres yeah. and and what and you know they used to sort of tout them around pubs and restaurants a lot of that was criminal money so that was money that was going back into organised crime. So it was, you could look at it and say, oh, it's harmless. But actually, according to a lot of the reports I've read, this is actually criminal activity that funds organized crime. So it's a problem. But it's also, it, it is criminal. And if you engage in it, you do expose yourself to not only fines, but imprisonment. I think that you made an important point about, you know, people just sort of ripping things off and not necessarily making money out of it. And is that piracy? And is it criminal infringement? It might be the civil copyright infringement. I'm not sure that you'd end up being pursued by the Crown Prosecution Service for doing that sort of thing. Well, this is an interesting question, actually, from the beginning. So from what I understand, copyright itself is not something that brings on like criminal. It doesn't have it's it's a civil issue. And so if you violate copyright, you're not going to go to jail for it. You just might get sued and, and lose a lot of money. Right. But when you start to do other things that, you know, I guess I know at some point it can become criminal, as you say. I don't know what, yeah, where, is, where is that fine line? Yeah, there is, a, there is a line. There is criminal copyright infringement. And that's what I'm talking oh. about when we're talking about piracy. I see. So there does come a point when it becomes criminal where you are exposing yourself to fines and imprisonment. I guess you just have to create a lot of copies in some sort of I yeah, guess, you've got like, to have, you know, it's, malicious it's, it's, manner. Exactly. You've got, to have, you, you, you've got to be deliberately, knowingly infringing copyright without any sort of defense, normally for financial gain. And then you'll engage the authorities, the police, who can bring those proceedings against you. But then again, anybody can bring a private prosecution. And a lot of the big media outlets will bring private prosecutions against pirates. That's right. Interesting. So, and what about, let's see, you've also got situations, for example, so like you said, it's not always that clear Let's say there's a movie or a song that's, you know, you want to pay for it, but it's just not on anywhere. And the only place you can find is some, some I don't know, some pirate, pirated website. You know, is it immoral to download from there to do that? And you're not paying any money. See, I'm a lawyer. I don't really get involved with morals and ethics. <laughs> <laughs> I get involved with law and un- legality and illegality. And technically... Yeah, I mean, the fact that you can't find a legitimate way to acquire it doesn't mean that you're allowed to do it. There is such a creature as an orphan work. Mm-hmm. That's a recognized legal term for a work which you know is in copyright, but you just don't know how to find the copyright owner. And there is legislation which covers certain types of orphan work, and there's various registers. There's a UK and an EU register of orphan works. So the position there is that if you've got an orphan work, well, if you if you want to make use of an orphan, if you let's say you're in a photograph and you don't know who the hell 
took this photograph, but you can tell from the subject matter that it was taken less than 70 years ago. So you know that the that it's a copyright work. You can sort of log that. In the UK, you would log it at the Orphan Works Register. Prior to, the, to us leaving the EU, you also had the option to do so at Europe. And if you do that, then you're given a sort of a, a get-out-of-jail-free card to an extent. If the owner turns up, then the ability of the owner to bring proceedings against you is significantly limited if you've taken those due diligence steps and logged the work on the register. Fair enough. And that, that makes sense. That, that does make sense. It's cool to, to have that exception. Also, I, I understand that uh, in terms of like copyright translations require copyright permission because they're an adaptation. Yeah. But, uh, and similarly, if you, if you said, if you quote a lot from something, but, but I guess if you were to take a book and rewrote every sentence differently, but it's still the same story, you're still violating copyright though, right? I, I wouldn't advise you to do that. <laughs> yeah. I think you would because yeah, to simply take every sentence and put it into your own words whilst expressing the same ideas, but doing it on a massive scale. Would That's cause a derivative problems. work, clearly. Yeah, there was a very there's a very interesting case from a while ago called Temple Island versus New English Tees. Hmm. And it concerns a photograph of a London bus going over Westminster Bridge. So you had the claimant who was an image business and product business who created a very sweet image of a route master going over, starting from north, heading south over Westminster Bridge with the Houses of Parliament, Big Ben in the background. And then what the what they did was they they cut the sky out, made the whole thing black and white, but kept the route master red. And then the defendant thought, well, that's a nice image. So first of all, they just copied the image without reference to the originator. And they got sued and told, no, you can't do that. And then reluctantly, what they then did, the defendant, was they commissioned an artist to stand at the same point on the south side of Westminster Bridge wait until a route master went over the bridge and at the same position, take that photograph, then went into the studio and meticulously recreated the same kind of technical results. So, you know, cutting the sky out, mm-hmm. making it black and white. And then they used that image. And when they were sued, they said, but we haven't copied it. This is a completely different image. But they got sued and the courts ultimately said, this is a copyright infringement. Yes, you've not, mm. uh, it's not a Strict photocopy. But you have gone out of your way to replicate every single artistic decision that the original artist made. Same thing with Shepard Ferry and uh, the Obama poster, right? uh, Yeah. Yeah. Well, he lost there and actually got in a lot of trouble. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) That Hope poster that did so well for helped Obama win the election. But yeah, okay. So yeah, too much copying. That's fine line. A lot of a lot of interpretation. A lot of space for clever people like yourself to come and, <laughs> and sort it out, which is cool. So yeah, so it is very very interesting. There, it's a uh, the space itself is a very creative space. It's constantly changing. It sounds like you know you you constantly need to learn both in terms of new technology and new case law and and, yeah. and just in terms of international law as well. Like what does it all mean, right? Yeah. I always think it's fascinating, particularly what I like is this, this intersection of copyright and art. And what I, what I think is interesting is the way that artists will always find a way to circumvent the law. <laughs> so each time there's a change in the law and or there's a court case where a decision is made that this is what the law of copyright says now, within minutes, you've got an artist circumventing that and saying, yeah, but what about this? Mm-hmm. 
And that's good. That's what you want. You need artists to keep creating sort of challenging work, which don't fit the mold. Because as lawyers, you know, we, we like to work with certainty. We like to work with definitions. We like to put things into categories and then yep. have a definitive answer in relation to the question, what is this? And I can definitively say that is definitely a work of artistic craftsmanship because that is what the legislation says. Artists don't work within those parameters and they're not concerned by these fine distinctions. So the job of the copyright lawyer to try and impose structure and order on the chaos that is the creative mind is a challenge. That's cool. Wow, I love that. Uh... And yes, it's true. Artists are often about subverting yeah. these frameworks, right? That's what makes it interesting. Cool. Bear in mind, we're still coming to terms with Duchamp. I mean, when was that? That was like, you know, over 100 years ago. And we still haven't figured out what the hell's going on there in terms of copyright. And for ready-mades, yeah, it's totally, yeah. totally unclear. And we haven't actually gotten that much into, I mean, we're running out of time, but obviously open source is such a, a big thing yeah. you know, in terms of code, like, uh, you know, this whole copy left or creative commons and, and open source licenses have created so much technology from what I understand, a lot of the internet servers running Linux are, are based on that. And a lot of advances have come like Firefox, for example, was the first browser to have tab browsing and ad blocking. Yeah. So, and that's an open source project. Yeah. And apparently Android is all also open source. So there's, there's all these things yeah, w- w- Wikipedia is a, an example of Creative Commons. So maybe if I have to explain what we're talking about here. So open source started really with, with software. And it was, it was a movement. It was, it was like, almost like a philosophical movement from programmers who said, look, copyright is all about keeping hold of stuff and pushing people away. That's anathema to us in our community, in the coding and tech community. That's not what we're about. We're about collaboration. So we don't like copyright. Let's create something different. So they created the open source movement, which was, look, here's Also known as copyleft. Yeah, yeah. And they said, look, here's our work. We're going to put it out there with minimal restrictions on what you can do. There are some, there are restrictions in the, in, in, under open source. You often have to, if you include a piece of open source software in your application, then the deal is that your entire application then becomes open source as well. So you've got to, you know, if you, you almost like you're infecting a piece of software, if you put a piece of open source in, it makes the whole source virus. Yeah. But in doing so, they created this fantastic explosion of creativity because suddenly everybody had access to everything. And generally I think you, most coders are evangelical about open source because they all use it. And it's how, you get this sort of exponential growth in technologies because people can just, they don't have to wait 70 years after the death of the first programmer to make any use of their work. <laughs> they, can just, they can just use it and build on it and create marvelous things. So that was open source. And by the way, just to be clear here, people can copy programs with their own code and simulate them, but it's the code that's copyrighted itself. That's yeah, the, in terms that's of copyright, that, just that's the copyright work, yeah. And then Creative Commons takes that same principle but applies it outside of code and applies it to text or photographs Images, yeah. or any sort of artwork. The idea that you know you create a piece of work and you put it up there and anyone can use it. So, you, so if you post something to Wikipedia, you're saying that anybody is allowed to take that and use it. So you can't, if you post a, a page to Wikipedia, you can't then complain that people are using that in their PowerPoint presentations because you've given your rights away. That's the whole concept of Creative Commons. You put it out there for people to use and you're contributing to the 
you know, the wider knowledge of the world. Um, yeah, I even that, heard that there's some sort of like, in addition to all these different Creative Commons uh, licenses, you know, we talk about like NR for non, uh, sorry, NC for non-commercial, all these different types. There's even something called like CC0, where apparently you waive all rights. Yeah. Completely, I'm, I'm, and you just want people, they could just use it, do whatever the hell they want, and you're waiving everything. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, there is that. Often you, you you share, except you put a restriction on commercial use. Often it's there's share and share alike, which is the That's principle right. that that if you put it up there, people are allowed to use it, but they've got to. But if they use it, you know, the principle I said that if you use Propagates. my work, then everything, the thing that you put it in, also is then subject to Creative Commons as well. Yeah. So yeah, it's a one. It is is a wonderful thing, and and open source and Creative Commons have shaped the world that we live in today. Definitely, that is amazing. Cool, cool stuff. Great. Well, I think that's a, a, a lot of a lot of turf for today. I'm sure we can do talk forever, we'll talk more so another time. But uh, thank you so much. This is this was a, a real pleasure. Great. Well, anytime, Aten. <laughs>